scripture lesson today is going to come from John 17. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those who, have, who you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, so that they may also be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those, that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I know that's a long passage. I know it's a big chunk of scripture but I felt it was appropriate to read the entire thing because this passage is no ordinary passage of scripture. This Sunday is known on our liturgical calendar as the seventh Sunday of Easter. It's the last Sunday on our Presbyterian liturgical calendar that still refers to Easter before the church moves into the time of Pentecost and then back into a period of ordinary time. It seems appropriate that we, as the church would continue to reflect on the Easter story, even after the occasion is passed, and to use that story to shape our subsequent faith. This scripture passage is part of that Easter story. 
The scene for this passage is set at the Last Supper, after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, the ultimate sign of servanthood, the ultimate sign of the care for those that had followed him. He knew that he would be betrayed in the following hours and eventually crucified, and he took this moment to address his disciples, those who had loved and followed him and would continue to do so even after he left the earth. His words could be considered a farewell address of sorts, in which Jesus gave the disciples advice, encouraged them, and told them what to expect after he was gone. The genre of farewell addresses is not uncommon to our human or even American histories. If you're a history buff, you're certainly familiar with Napoleon Bonaparte's goodbye to the old guard after his failed invasion of, the Russian defeat, uh, of Russia and his defeat by the Allies. If you're also a history buff, you may be familiar with Abraham Lincoln's farewell address to his community before he left for his presidential campaign. But if you're like me and you love sports, Lou Gehrig's farewell to baseball at Yankee Stadium is etched in your memory and you still love listening to it even if you couldn't hear it for the first time. Each of these speeches are etched into our collective history. Many of us have read them or have at very least heard about them. It seems reasonable that if these sorts of speeches have impacted and shaped our historical narrative this much, how much more would the farewell speech of Jesus shape the life of the church? One thing in particular about Jesus' speech that sets it apart from all the ones we've mentioned is the prayer. This speech, which etches throughout John, spans countless chapters in John, is concluded with a prayer. Not an address to disciples, but a prayer to God, speaking directly to his heavenly Father. Now, concluding a farewell address with a prayer wasn't an uncommon practice. Both Jewish literature and other ancient literature of the Mediterranean contained prayers in farewell addresses. The original hearers of the Gospel of John may have even expected to hear this. However, Jesus' prayer was unlike any other prayer that had been included in an address. It wasn't like many other so-called deathbed prayers that one might have encountered. Instead, this prayer was the prayer of one who was on the verge of willingly laying down his life for all of humanity so that we might experience grace. This prayer held an important message for both the disciples that were in attendance that night and for the church collectively that would develop after Jesus departed the world. We certainly live in a day of sound bites, quick information, and fast fixes. Because of this, we often desire information in a succinct way that's easy to communicate to others. Our 30-second elevator speech, if you will. Although the prayer found in John 17 is rich and full of significance, I'd like to boil it down to a single buzzword for us. Unity. Specifically, the unity of God the Father, God the Son, and believers across time. This unity has implications for how believers in every time and place should understand their, themselves and their role in God's creation. Unity shapes the way that we approach faith, our churches, and our call as Christians. Although the prayer should be read as an indivisible unit, it could also be divided into a few sections. Each of the three sections, a different topic is prayed about, but all topics address unity. The prayer is three parts within one prayer, a triune prayer, if you will, that seeks unity above all else in the kingdom of God. The first part of the prayer is found in verses 1 through 8, where Jesus prayed for his own glorification. This may not seem important at first glance, but it's the basis for which all other unity is founded. Essentially, Jesus prayed that he would be glorified so that God the Father would be glorified. Jesus knew that the completion of his earthly ministry depended on God, 
and recognized God as the source of everything he had been given, even his disciples. He knew that his disciples and all believers were a gift from God to be used for his glory. Jesus emphasized his work as the completion of God's work and as the ultimate revelation of God's glory. This section of the prayer established the connection between Jesus and God the Father. It made it clear that they were unified and that the ministry of Jesus was grounded in God primarily. The middle section of the prayer, found in verses 9 through 23, directly addressed the faith community. During this portion, Jesus turned from his own glorification to intercession or prayer for the future life of the church. This prayer, though, doesn't merely apply to just the disciples in the room that night. It applies to all community life after that moment, not just that moment in time. It's a transcendent prayer. The primary quest of this prayer was for God's safeguarding of the faith community in the world that they would set, be set apart for God's work. The human manifestation and earthly ministry of Jesus was the ultimate revelation of God's work, but it would be continued in the life of all subsequent disciples and believers. That is, God's identity and very character shaped the identity of the faith community during Jesus' ministry and in the future. Because of this grounding, Jesus asked God to keep the community safe and secure. He's essentially trusting the outcome of the entire faith community and the entire history of Christian faith to his Father, God, on his departure. Jesus had full confidence in God. He had full confidence that God would complete the work that he was going to do, even after he was gone. He trusted that God would care and send the Holy Spirit to all of his disciples, even after he was gone. If Jesus can trust God with the future of faith community, you know, I certainly hope I can too. Another topic of Jesus' intercession was the community's relationship to the world. He knew it wasn't merely enough to keep their faith locked away in a small group. He knew that for Christianity to thrive, survive, and grow, it had to go out into the world. But he also knew that there would be threats. The evil one that's mentioned in verse 15 is synonymous with and is the personification of the evil forces in the world that are opposed to God and his ultimate plan of redemption for a broken world. The prediction of persecution that's found in the prayer in John 17 also points to the threat the world has and its hatred of the faith community, the threat that the world and its hatred of faith community poses to Christian unity. Knowing this, it was for the preservation of this unity in the face of the power of evil that Jesus seeks God's help. Jesus knew that the Christian community would need God's protection if it was to live out its identity and vocation in the world. He knew it would be challenging. He knew it would be hard, but he knew it would be worth it. Concluding his prayer, Jesus asked God to do for the disciples what he had already done for him. Set them apart for God's work in the world. Through their sanctification and their sending, the disciples and all believers would continue Jesus' work in the world. But that wasn't the end of it. Jesus didn't stop there. He expanded the circle for whom he prayed. He prayed for those who took on his work in the world at that time, and also for those who would come to believe later through that work. This distinction between these people and those people doesn't merely mean the first generation of believers and all future believers. It also is between those in any generation who already believe and those who do not yet believe but may possibly come to know God on account of the work of Christians. In the last part of John 17, Jesus removes 
all distinctions between those who already have faith and those who will be brought to faith. All believers ultimately depend, all belief ultimately depends on God's gift of grace, not by our own works. Just like Jesus' work through the power of God, our work in faith is through the power of God as well, and ultimately, he is the one that brings about faith to all. It's obvious that the primary focus of Jesus' farewell prayer is the faith community. He repeats it many times. Throughout his entire discourse in the Gospel of John, Jesus made promises to the disciples and the reader about the future, and in this prayer, Jesus entrusts that future to God. It's important to recognize that instead of entrusting the community's future to the community itself, Jesus entrusted it to God. In essence, Jesus' words turn the future of the community over to God for safekeeping. It's certainly reassuring that, the body of Christ we have, that as the body of Christ, we have been entrusted to the care of the one who created us, redeemed us, and loves us. We, with believers in every time and place, belong to God. It shapes our identity, gives us a calling, sustains us in times of weakness, and inspires us to continue the work of God in the world. Additionally, Jesus' prayer for the community models how the community is to understand and live out its identity in the world. It brings to our attention that all of life rests in and depends on God's care. This means that the future of the church ultimately does not depend on or derive from the church's own work. What a relief that despite all of our shortcomings, failures, and misguided notions, God's work can still be accomplished. We live in worship in a time where the word church often has negative contexts. It's sad, and faith communities have become outlets of discrimination, exclusion, and hatred. We are engaged in debates that span denominations about scripture, about who should be allowed to be ordained, about who should be allowed marriage, and who is eligible for communion at God's table. This present moment seems fraught with everything but the unity described in Jesus' farewell prayer. I wonder, though, how the Christian community's identity would be changed if we recognized that we are a community for whom Jesus prays. And if we lived in light of that, what would be different? If we recognized that the ministry of Jesus was grounded in the very character and nature of God, and that subsequently the ministry of the church must likewise be grounded in that way. If we viewed our ministries in the world as the glorification of God as Jesus did, would we think twice about where our priorities lie? Would we think about the areas we're serving in and how we care for people? Finally, if we viewed all believers as belonging to the group for whom Jesus prayed, if in spite of our differences and struggles, we realize that we are all here for the same purpose, to glorify God and continue the ministry of Jesus in a dark and broken world, perhaps if we spent more time joining in unity described in John 17 and becoming the hands and feet of Jesus together, we would actually be the manifestation of God's grace that Jesus knew we were meant to be and confidently prayed for us to be. Jesus' prayer ultimately invites the faith community to believe as Jesus believed at this hour that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. At this point, I'd like to invite the band up as we prepare to do our tithes and offerings and give back to the Lord.